Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. So it's uh, Thursday night. It's the Thursday night before his crucifixion, the night before what would come to be known as Good Friday. One last opportunity that Jesus has to pour into his disciples. This one last message that he could share with him. Parting last words. A special moment between him and them. He knew that on the other side of this night, on the other side of this precipice, that everything would change. Everything would be different. They didn't know, but he did. I imagine that they could sense the heaviness of the moment. They could tell how serious he was, his somber tone. But maybe they had no idea what was hanging in the balance, what was overlooking tomorrow. It's a moment that scholars will come to call the upper room discourse. Some call it the farewell address And in some ways, at least on that night, it would all be lost on them. They couldn't tell what he was talking about. It would be years before they would come to appreciate the impact of the words that he was saying. Years before they'd be able to process and be strengthened, empowered by what had been poured into them that evening. It's a little like us today. Like, we said last week that when we come together, when we do this, when we share this space, we're in a space between past and future. A spot called now. And it's really all we have. And we don't know what's coming around the bend. We can't see into the future. Jesus knows But we don't. And so we share this moment, but that's all it is. One moment before everything starts back up. In a moment, you will be off into your week. You'll be off into the rest of your year. Like it's off to the races in just a moment. But what we do have is now. This moment. Before everything changes. Some of you, um, this week, You started back to school with your families, with your kids. Like the lull of summer is gone and we're settling back into a rhythm, into a routine. And that rhythm, that routine is really high paced, right? We're running. I think the second day of school is harder than the first day of school. Like the first day of school, my kids wake up in the morning like they're coming off the bench at a basketball game. They're just like, whoa, we're going. We're so glad this has happened. And then the second day, they're like, please don't make me wake up. I can't believe I have to do this for nine more months. Did I I ever look forward to school starting back, right? It's so difficult. And we're going to be running hard, y'all, for nine more months. And then... We don't know what's going to happen in those nine months. We don't know what's going to happen in this year. We don't know what kind of lifetimes we're going to experience. There's all 
all the questions, all the confusion, all the mystery about what our year is going to look like, what our lives are going to look like, but we have this moment right now. That's all we have in common. How do we set that apart? How do we make this, how do we pin it down, this moment, and make it last longer? And how do we do that knowing that Jesus knows the future? Because he does. They didn't know. But Jesus knew. I often think about Jesus at that table. You know the famous Last Supper table? The one where they all sat on one side so Leonardo could take a picture. (laughs) And they're sitting there. And I wonder if as he looked around the table... He thought about their futures. I think he felt pride. I felt pride. This past Friday, I had the opportunity to speak at a retreat, and I got to bring some of my friends with me, some of the small group leaders and volunteers from this church, people who pour their lives into the next generation, which I, I love. And it was, it was such a moment of pride for me as I watched them serve. You kind of feel like a a proud dad or a proud grandparent where you're like, man, look at them. They're doing it. Like, you guys know Ross? Ross is one of those people who, like, he preps for spending time with people. This morning before you got here, this is what Ross was doing. He was down in his little cubicle, right, eating breakfast. Like, he's training for when you guys would be here so that he could come connect with you, like, to just come sit. There was a kid at the retreat that was by himself, and Ross buddied up with him. And, and not just for like 20 minutes, right? Which would, that's normally what I do. I'm like, they're going to get sick of me pretty quick. Ross is like, I'm with you all day. You know, whether you like it or not. Like he's there and he's listening for what they say. Like he's paying attention. He asks questions, follow-up questions. It's his superpower. There's a young lady in our church named Megan. Um, her last name is now Moore, same as mine, but there's no relation. Watching her serve. Like, she's taking notes on the messages so that she'd have more to share in small group. You guys, she's recently decided that she was going to be a Young Lives mentor. She's the one that Jay was speaking about just a moment ago who's helping organize meals for Young Lives here in our church. This ministry to team moms. Like, it's this amazing, it's in your emails, right, or in your app like Jay was talking about a minute ago. If you didn't get the email, fill out the card, all the stuff. We don't want you to miss anything. Megan has been entrusted with that. It's like, I'm so proud of her. Luke is one of these guys that just, he knows so much about the Bible, and he's so approachable to students. JJ was there. JJ is a servant, man. There's not a trash bag that can be changed before he's on it. He's like, he's got it. There's dishes to be washed. He's got it, and he's always smiling like you can't overwhelm him pretty amazing. Miss Jane was there just paying attention to everybody's need, making sure everybody's good. How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? And I'm looking around at all these people and I'm going, man, there's so many of you doing so much. I'm so proud of you. But I couldn't see the future for that. Jesus at that dinner, he could see the future. Like he could see how these guys would live and how these guys 
would die. Right after, you know, Good Friday, of course, when he split time in half, he knew the heaviness of what would come in the morning, literally splitting time in half, buying our salvation, right? Writing the check that would buy our freedom, and then knowing that Sunday morning the check was going to clear. They didn't know any of that, right? He kept trying to tell them. He's like, they're going to kill me. That's where this is headed. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, but on Sunday morning, I'm going to pull off Easter. And they're like, we don't know what that means either, you know? So as he's looking around that table, I wonder if he thought to himself, like, gosh, I'm so proud of you guys. You can't see it yet. You can't, you don't know what's around the bend because you can't see it yet. But Thomas, one day you're going to go to India. You're going to bring the gospel there and they're going to be super mad about it. And so they're going to spear you to death. It's heavy. I wonder if as he looked at Philip, he goes, you know, you're going to be in North Africa, Asia Minor, where you're also going to be cruelly put to death. Matthew, you're going to end up being stabbed to death. That's how you're going to die. Bartholomew, you'll go to India with Thomas, and then you'll go to Armenia and Ethiopia and Saudi Arabia. You'll be killed there. James, good news, James, you're going to be stoned and clubbed to death. Like, isn't that exciting? You're, but you're going to get to share the gospel while you're doing it, Matthias, you're going to go to Syria with Andrew. They're going, to, they're going to light you on fire. You know, he doesn't say this out loud, but I wonder if he thought it. And then Peter, famously. I wonder if as he looked at Peter. <laughs> Peter's the guy on the team that like when he speaks, everyone braces. Because you don't know what he's going to say. And it's normally not good. Sometimes it starts a fight. In a couple hours from this moment, Peter was going to slice a dude's ear off. You guys remember, this is what's coming. They don't know any of this. A few hours from then, a middle school-aged girl was going to intimidate Peter from even saying that he knew Jesus. He's like, I don't know the man. He's like, I'm scared, you know. She's 12. That Peter. I wonder if as Jesus looked at him, he thought, oh, man, you can't see it right now. But one day, you're going to take the gospel all over. You're going to be the spokesman for the group, the leader of this movement. And when they kill you, and they will, they're going to crucify you. And you're going to say, I can't die like my Lord. So do it upside down. It's going to be your idea. I wonder if as Jesus looked around that table, he saw these guys, he was proud of them, but he knew how boneheaded some of them were, but he still, still could see all that they would accomplish. He could see the future. He knew after this night, everything's going to change. Everything's going to be different. What do you do in a moment like that to pin it down, to make it special, to hang on to it? Especially when they don't know. It's a lot like us today. I just keep thinking about this. Like, we don't see the future. We don't know the future. So similar to what we're experiencing. And on that night, into this vast vacuum of the disciples' ignorance, the inability to see around the corner, to know what's coming next, the powerlessness to appreciate the power of this moment that they are sharing, Jesus shares some famous words that are so powerful, and it comes in John chapter 14. If you got your Bibles, I want to turn there for just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. If you don't own one, 
keep it, put your name in it. It's our gift to you. We like to put the addresses on the screen so we can look it up and see it together um, as we study this, this book. In John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples for life without him, which they didn't know there was such a thing. They thought they're still expecting he's going to overthrow Rome. They didn't know there was a such thing as life without him. And so he begins to try to prepare them for life without him. That's the context at this last supper meal right before he goes to the cross. Jesus says in verse 1, he goes, don't, this is funny, let your hearts be troubled. Now pause. If I'm a disciple, it's like, all right, too late. Like you, you just, I, my heart wasn't troubled, but then you said, don't let your heart be troubled, which makes my heart a little troubled. The fact that you have to say it makes me nervous. And I can feel the heaviness of whatever is going on. So I'm a little bit nervous, Jesus, right? I'm already troubled. And then he goes on. He goes, you believe in God. You see this there. Believe also in me. For in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I tell you? that I go to prepare a place for you, what happens here is truly mesmerizing. To appreciate the, the power of this verse, two and three, what comes next, is, is a lot of it is kind of lost on us because we didn't grow up in the world that the disciples grew up in. You know, we, we grew up as 21st, 22nd century North Americans, right? So we don't see all that's going on here. But in their world, there was this rich wedding tradition that Jesus is drawing from in these verses, around the time a young lady would turn 12 or 13, her father would begin entertaining bids for her hand in marriage. Any 12 or 13-year-old girls in the room. He would basically begin going, you guys, I'm taking offers, taking applications, resumes, anybody want to marry my daughter, right? And so other dads from around the, around the neighborhood and the village would begin approaching him like if they had a young man that they thought was suitable for her, they would begin approaching him with offers like, I think, you know, my son would be a great match for your daughter. I'll give you 30 sacks of grain, you know. And dad is like, my daughter is worth so much more than 30 sacks of grain. Like, she's worth like 50 head of cattle, you know. And so he'd begin listening to all these different offers. And when he heard one from a guy that, one, he liked, and two, the offer was, was good enough, right, they would strike a deal, they would shake hands in this culture. Now, this does not mean that they are married. No, the marriage has sort of been arranged. But here's what's so progressive about first century Christianity or uh, 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 Judaism. It still leaves all the power with the young lady. How? Well, at this point, once they strike that deal, once they decide on this, a party would be organized. A banquet would be organized. Both families would rent a facility. They'd get a band, right? They'd get lights and, and, and food and soda, and they'd put all the elements in this one place, right, where everybody comes together. They make all the invites. Everybody's there. It's a lot of festivities, eating, dancing, partying, and they would all be there, and at some point during the night, the young lady would begin, she'd begin like looking for like, who's the guy? Who's the guy? And the guy is like looking for where is she? Where is she? Because they probably don't know each other yet, and at some point during the night, this is so cool, the music would stop. The dancing would stop. 
all eyes would fall on the couple. The spotlight would fall on the couple. And under the warm glow of that spotlight, the young man would extend to the young lady a glass. Now, if she drinks the glass, she's saying to him, I accept. But what's so powerful and so cool and so progressive of them is she also can reject it. And if she rejects it, the whole thing is off. The whole party, the whole arrangement, all of this is over. It's all been for naught. Everybody turns their own separate ways and goes back home, and they never speak of it again, right? But if she accepts it, if she drinks of the glass, then the young man would go back to his father's house after this evening. They are not married yet. He would go to his father's house. Homes in this day and age existed. They were called insulas, right? There were these long strips, these long rooms, these houses where multiple generations all lived together under one roof. And as the, as the family grew, each generation would add on a little bit to the house and a little bit to the house. And so the young man would go back to the family home and begin building on to the house, right? Getting ready for his bride. And his father would uh, predictably but also randomly come by and inspect what he had been building. He'd come make sure it's flat, right? He's making sure that everything's holding up, right? Is this suitable for my future daughter-in-law? He's working feverishly, never knowing when his dad's going to show up or or when his dad is going to say, okay, it's ready, right? Now, fast forward. On the other side of the party, the young lady who has drank from the glass, assuming she drinks from this glass, she goes back to her parents' house, and she packs her bags. She leaves them by the door just in case he comes because she doesn't know either. But until he comes, she is to be working diligently at learning how to run a house, how to keep a house, how to raise a family, learning how to, how to all, this, all the household chores, right? She's learning all of these things, ever ready for the moment she sees him riding over the horizon to come and get her. Now, back to the banquet. He's extended to her the glass. If she rejects it, the whole thing's off. Everybody goes home. But if she drinks it, if she accepts what he has extended to her, then he, the fiancé now, the son, would drop to a knee and recite a speech that every dad in that culture knew because he had given it. Every boy in that culture would know if they had ever been to one of these parties. They all knew it. If she drank of the glass with the spotlight on him, the music stopped, everybody would hear as he dropped to a knee and said, my father's house, verse 2, has many rooms. If it were not so, would I tell you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, you may also be. In this moment of heaviness, on the eve of a day when everything would change, when nothing but confusion 
and questions were around the corner as he attempted to prepare his disciples something they couldn't conceive of, life without him. Jesus soothes their anxious hearts by reciting to them a speech that they were familiar with and comforted by. And then he allows a moment for that to just kind of settle in. And he adds a line to it, verse 4. He goes, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And then the heaviness settles in. It's quiet. It's crickets. They're questioning. They're confused. They're wrestling. They're grappling. And then <laughs> Thomas, my namesake, says what we're all thinking. I imagine him blurting it out in verse 5. He goes, Lord... We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like, we, okay, that's beautiful and all, this speech. I'm very confused, by the way. But we don't even know. We have no idea. You just said you're leaving, right? We don't know where you're going. Like, are you leaving after dinner? Are you going in the morning? Like, when are you going? And, and so we don't know where you're. How can we know the way? And this is the backdrop for what Jesus says next. He goes, Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is so powerful because if you're anything like me, you're a little bit like Thomas. We live in a day and age where it feels, it feels so confusing out there. And I know I talk about this a lot. I harp on it a lot. Please don't misunderstand, though. I just know that after we leave this morning, it's going to get real foggy out there real quick. There's so much going on in the world where it's like, I feel so lost right now, God. I don't know how to hear your voice. I don't know how to follow you. I don't know what to do, right? I know I drank of the glass, which, by the way, if you don't know that Jewish background wedding tradition, like, it, you're, it's like you're missing so, isn't that? It's like watching high death, right? It's like, oh, that just enhances it. So much. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 26, he goes, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but only the father knows the day and the hour, right? When you take into account that wedding tradition where the son is working on the room, but the father is in charge of knowing when he's going to send the son to go get his bride, and we're the bride, and we're supposed to be working, but keeping our bags packed and ready to go too, right? There's so much there. And until that day, we're just trying to navigate this life. And this life is nuts. There's so much going on in the world that we live in. In Joshua chapter 4, Joshua says to the Israelites there, he goes, we have never been this way before. And I know that he was talking about the march that they were getting ready to do, but I think so often about how much our society has never been this way before. We are the most different generation in the history of the world. Did you know that um, in 2020, the population of the world is like 7.8 billion people? And of that, you're like, yeah, of course I knew that. 7.8 billion people, and 60% of them are on social media. Isn't that nuts? That's a lot of people on social media. And on average, we spend three hours a day on there. Those, those 4. Point, um, sorry, those uh, yeah, 4.62 billion people that are on social media are on there for three hours a day. I think we're a lifetime away from knowing what all that blue light and comparison does to our brains. It's rewiring 
our brains. And we're beginning to see that too. Did you know that for people ages 6 to 17, researchers found a 20% increase in the diagnosis of anxiety between 2007 and 2012? Five years. And what happened in 07? The invention of the iPhone. We took this device that helps you see what everybody else is doing, helps you compare it, and we put it in kids' hands and go, good luck. We're the first generation in history where more influence comes from outside the home into the home than from within the home out into the world. We've never been this way before. Did you know in the U.S. alone, depression is the leading cause of disability for people five years old and older? Five. You've got five-year-olds walking around with depression. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 10 to 14-year-olds and 25 to 34-year-olds. It's the third leading cause of death among individuals between 15 and 24, and the fourth leading cause of death among people 35 to 44. We have never been this way before. And just think about all the stuff going on in politics. It just feels like everything is so loaded right now. The availability of drugs, right? The availability of pornography. Like we have never been this way before. We're living in unusual times and there's so much noise out there. You ever notice that? Like everybody's got an opinion and we have access all the time to all of those opinions. Do you feel a little overwhelmed? Do you feel a little bit lost? I feel like Thomas where I'm like, how in the world am I supposed to know the way? How in the world am I supposed to figure this out, Jesus? How in the world am I ever going to get from here to there? And then Jesus goes, oh, Thomas, I am the way. Yeah, this isn't the darkest, maybe, that the world has ever been. You know, in Isaiah's day, the Israelites were quite lost. They'd gotten into some messed up stuff. And God had asked them to do just one thing. He's like, just be faithful to me, right? Don't worship other gods and then remember the poor. Those were his two big rules, right? Don't worship other gods and remember the poor. And they go, we're not going to do either, right? And so God would send captors in to, to kind of to enslave them, hoping that this would cause them to come back to him. And you know what they did instead? They just went out and made treaties with other countries. They're like, you know, God's going, I'm hoping that me sending this suffering is going to cause you to turn your heart back to me. And they're like, no, thank you. We'll just go talk to Egypt. Egypt will pr protect us. And they enter into a treaty with Egypt. This and in Isaiah chapter 30, you can mark this down, take a look at it later. God is talking to these people, the Israelites. He's talking to the nation through his prophet Isaiah. And he goes, whoa, <laughs> that's not a good word in the Old Testament. Like if God uses it, you are woed. <laughs> you, are, you are seriously woed. Woe to the obstinate children declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that aren't mine, you're not doing what I've asked you to do. You're forming an alliance, not by my spirit, keeping sin upon sin. You go down to Egypt without consulting me. He's like, you're consulting everybody else. You're listening to all the experts. You're Googling to try to figure out your way through all of this. Through the maze, you're asking everybody else without consulting me. You are looking for Pharaoh's protection 
and to Egypt for shade. He's like, guys, the one thing I've asked is that you keep your eyes on me. And you're looking everywhere else. And amidst all that talk of anger and wrath and frustration, God tips his hand and gives us a prophecy about a coming day in verse 21. He goes, but there will be a day whether you turn to the right or the left, as confusing as this maze is, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way, hey, this is the way, follow me, follow me. This is the way. And this is the passage, by the way, that Jesus is drawing from in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way. It's a prophecy that Isaiah made about a coming day when there, you would hear a voice. This voice would kind of be your GPS system, right? Your navigation device. This voice behind you that you got to really, you kind of got to listen closely for, right? And it will direct you. There will come a day when you will have a voice behind you that will show you the way. And then when that day comes, Jesus goes, hey, hey, hey I'm the way. Like, what I'm going to do for you is so much better. I'm going to buy your freedom. I'm going to write a check for your freedom on Friday. And on Sunday morning, my resurrection will be proof that the check cleared. And then me going up into heaven and ascending, uh, you will have access to the spirit that will live inside of you, that will guide you through life, right? This is what he says. He tells the disciples the same upper room discourse, this dinner that they're sharing together. He's like, you know, guys, they're going to kill me. That's where this is headed, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to life, you know, and, and then I'm going to go off into heaven. I'm going to be gone. But it's actually, do you remember the word that he uses for him leaving? He goes, it's actually better for you that I go. Better? What? Okay, John 16, verse 7. It's better for you that I leave. If I'm sitting around that table, I'm like, Jesus, okay, better? I don't know about better. Like, what could be better than having Jesus in the earthly presence around you all the time? Jesus, I don't know if that's better that you leave. Why did he, how could he say that? What would be better? Like, imagine, imagine we had Jesus on staff at, at, at at Seacoast, right? Yeah, I mean, the crowd, it would be like, you son of God, you know, he's pretty, kind of a big deal, you know? Jesus is like, uh, you know, if I'm a disciple, I'm like, I think you should stick around. Like, I think we could do a whole, like, we could get you um, uh, uh, an agent, right? You could get a writer, like, we could, you could go on tour, you could talk, you could heal, like, the whole world will line up to see you, and Jesus goes, I know that sounds good to you, but it's actually better that we don't do that. How could that be better? And then he shares with them. He goes, well, unless I go back, you're not going to have access to the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is going to come live inside of you and sensitize your consciences, sensitize your hearts, and lead you through this life as confusing and crazy as it is. God says, there will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. And you only hear him by focusing on that voice. We have this great thing that he's given us, this resource for making it through this life. And all we have to do, y'all, guys, 
All we have to do is stay focused on him. And the same conversation, the same discourse, this upper room discourse, you guys remember Jesus uses a word picture with the disciples because they're kind of slow. You know, they're disciples. They're not quick, you know. And so he's like, you guys, uh, if you ever, you ever seen a vineyard? And they're like, yeah, we know vineyards. You guys remember this? And he's like, you know, have you ever in that vineyard seen a piece of fruit that's not connected to a branch or a vine growing? And they're like, oh. No, like they're like, is that the right? No, you know, you ever see a fruit on the ground just going like trying to grow on its own? And they're like, no, I don't, that doesn't sound right. You know, and he's like, it's not right. It would never happen, right? We, if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to hear that voice, if we're going to find our way, our job is to stay connected to the vine. You stay connected to him. You keep him primary and everything else secondary. Like, God, okay, it's gotten confusing out there again. I've got to keep my eyes on you. I've got to keep my eyes on you. And everything else flows out of that. I think the enemy knows that. You ever notice how much he tries to distract us? I have this terrible habit when I'm driving my car. Like, if I'm looking straight ahead, I go straight. If I look to something on the left side of the road, some reason my hands also go, you know, and so then I'm like, you know, and it's, it just depends on where I'm looking. Ever known anybody like that? Spiritually, I think we can do the same things. Jesus is like, okay, if you want to grow in me, if you want to make it through this life, if you want to find your way to where I am, the place where I'm building a room for you, if you want to get there, but just stay focused on me. Just stay connected to me. Just keep your eyes on me. And the enemy's going, look here, look here, look here. And our cars start going all over the road. And we come back to this room. And we go, okay, God, I did it again. I need to refocus. I need to recalibrate. I need to remember. There's a world out there that's just waiting to get you. And it's still there. Like as soon as we leave this room, it'll be waiting for you. I promise. We have this moment. So how do you take this moment? This moment. How do you take this moment and pin it down and try to make it last longer? For Jesus... What he did with the disciples, the eve before everything would change, he instituted a sacrament, literally a holy moment. Sacra comes from the Latin, which means Hebrew, and meant is a suffix that is at the end of moment, right? Literally a holy moment. All we have is right now. And Jesus goes, as often as you guys get together, refocus, recalibrate, remember. Ask God to take all, okay, all I have is right now, Jesus. I've got to keep my eyes on you. I've accumulated a lot of confusion out there, but I'm here right now. And I don't want my car chasing the left and the right. I want that voice behind me loud and clear pointing me to you, the way, the truth, and the life. And so this morning, 
Friends, we're going to spend just a moment doing that. Celebrating communion, a sacrament that the Lord instituted, a holy moment, a cup that if you drink of it, if you have drunk of it, you are that bride in the story who is waiting for her bridegroom to come take her home. Bags packed, but eagerly busy about the Lord's business in the meantime. Never knowing the day or the hour, but always hoping. Always ready. Always eager. The Lord extends to you a cup. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.